Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orlands. I'm president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and today I'm joined by an old friend, uh, Peter Bautelier, who has just written a book uh, called Economic Policymaking in China, 1949 to 2016, The Role of Economists. Those of you who know Peter know that he spent most of his career at the World Bank. And in fact, I think I first met him 25 years ago when he was running the uh, World Bank office in Beijing. Mm -hmm. So thanks for joining us. Now, why 49 to 2016. Why not 1979 to 2016? Well, when I started working on this, I didn't originally plan to publish it in a book form. I was just very curious, anxious to satisfy my own curiosity about what had happened actually in the period before Deng Xiaoping began to steer the whole system in a different direction. So I went back to the old Mao period to see what we really knew about the economic policies and the key architects of those policies during that period. And 49 was put in by the publisher because that's sort of a, a year most people know, the year that the PRC was sure. established. But if you look at the book inside, you'll find that there are actually quite a few references to the period before 49. What I should have said is from the time that the communists gained control over significant parts of China, and the first time that really happened was in Jiangxi province in 31, when Mao Zedong was elected chairman of the party. When you look at the history of that Soviet, it's very interesting that these country bumpkins, because they weren't educated economists at that time, except for one person whom I identify in the book, um, were very interested in a number of economic phenomena, like financial stability. Chiang Kai-shek, who was in control of the most, most of China at that time, was not never very successful in pursuing financial stability. Inflation was rampant already then. It became worse in 34 after the U.S. passed the Silver Purchase Act. But already in 31, the communists in charge of Soviet, of the Jiangxi Soviet, were very keen to fight inflation. And you know they did that by establishing their own bank in, in the Jiangxi Soviet, which had the right to issue money, paper money as well as coins. So that became their central bank. The, these country bumpkins had a central bank already in 31. So you're kind of taking a somewhat non-standard approach by saying, okay, let's look at the 49 to 79 period before Deng Xiaoping kind of, in my view, reversed uh, the economic policies right. and began to have the private yeah. sector play the and major I role. And I did that primarily because although we know the Deng Xiaoping period much better than the Mao Zedong period, you cannot really understand the economic policies that were introduced in the late 70s and early 80s and the tremendous debates they had unless you also understand the problems they had to deal with. 
When did trained economists really begin to play a role? Well, there weren't really many trained economists until the late 70s. But one fellow who played a significant role already in 48 was Shimu Chao. Mm-hmm. He's dead now. But he was a good friend of uh, Chen Yun. And Chen Yun was, of course, a very supreme party leader already before the PRC was established, was head of the Economic Commission in Shenyang, in the northwest in Dongbei. Shimu Chao was his only more or less trained economist on whom Chen Yun relied for economic advice. And although I couldn't find the evidence of that, the creation of the renminbi in December 48 was probably the brainchild of Shimu Chao. <laughs> so Deng really, though, was his own economist. Deng was a very clever politician, very wise man, and a very determined politician who had a good sense of how you run an economy. And he knew very well what had gone wrong during the Mao Zedong years. He had, in fact, already in the early 60s, tried to steer the whole thing in a different direction. Now, in the book, you talk about when you were at the World Bank and kind of the almost the convening of economists to work with the Chinese government yeah. uh, to kind it's, of come up with plan. It's very interesting to, to analyze what really went on in that relationship between the early PRC or the, the, the PRC after Deng Xiaoping took control of the policy-making processes and the World Bank. The primary interest, of, us, of course, was normalization in the relations with U.S. But one of the factors that lay only millimeters behind that was gaining access to global capital markets. And they had in mind to become members of the IMF yeah, by the and the World Bank you... very quickly. That was way before my time. Right, yeah, but I'm talking about when you were then at the World Bank, when you were the in chief the representative 90s, in, in the, the early yeah, 90s, mid-90s. Yeah. That relationship was still very important. It was not long after Tiananmen. And they, they had invited the World Bank to establish an office in Beijing already in the mid-80s, which they had done in a hotel. But that was based on a six-year uh, in a hotel. That hotel became too small. When they were thinking about moving to a more permanent commercial location in 89, Tiananmen had just happened. And even mm-hmm. though they were wanting to move to the Swiss hotel on the Second Ring Road at that <laughs> time to rent four or five rooms, which was big enough, Ministry of Finance said no. We want you closer to us. You are too important. And the Ministry of Finance arranged for the World Bank to rent on a six-year lease basis one of the buildings in the Jiayutai. So when I came in the beginning of 93, the office was still in the Jiayutai. There's all the security around it. It made it pain in the neck to get pain in, in and the out. neck yeah. for Chinese academics who wanted to consult our library. Mm-hmm. But they basically were listening to both, at that point, a few domestic economists, but also foreign economists, that you were really, you felt you were really having an impact. Right. They were very interested to know more about the Western economics system of management. They used the World Bank more than any other agency to help them understand what was going on. 
the World Bank was sort of non-threatening to them, was not politically aligned with any particular government, and McNamara was the president at that time, and they had confidence in McNamara because he had proven his independence from the U.S. government right. to them. Take us to today. Did the Chinese still listen to foreign economists? Well, they don't need the money anymore, but there is an understanding that they will continue to borrow money the World for Bank. Yeah. Uh, experimental projects. They continue to use the World Bank, but no longer for things they know themselves, like building roads and power right. plants, but for totally new systems of management, technologies, where they have to experiment and don't want to sell out to a particular government or company. So they use the World Bank still for the, to the tune of about a billion and a half per year for experimental projects in new areas. Experimental on technology, management, accounting, and that is the relationship. So they still have that close relationship with the World Bank. But it is very different today from even the early 90s. When has, China, has China abandoned reform? The, is the Gaiga Kaifang of yesteryear gone? Well, I devote my final chapter in the book to the question, what is going on today? And I'm a little, expressing in the book my, my own worries about what is going on. Because it seems, at least, that the current top leadership in the party is no longer following the model that had been... Right put on the horizon by Deng Xiaoping and his successors. I'm worried that the current top leadership is more concerned about re-establishing the power and the prestige of the party than in pursuing the economic model and economic development that we thought they were aiming at. So I'm a little concerned now. And what do you think, Can you, do you have anything that would allow you to look ahead? You know, the Chinese have shown a great history of, of kind of when they adopt wrong policies to reverse those policies and adopt correct policies. Yeah. Um, are we going to see that or are we going to see basically a, a new model that's going to be problematic for China and for U.S.-China relations? It is very problematic for both China internally and for international relations and we are seeing the effects of that today in the U.S.-China relationship, which has never been worse. I privately still hope that things will turn around in the right direction, but I'm no longer confident it will. We have had five years under the current uh, party secretary, who seems to be doing everything to consolidate his own position, who is doing away with this at least the psychology of collective leadership that had been established in the late 70s by Deng Xiaoping. So I'm not confident, but hoping that at some point this thing will turn around again. And yeah, except that we have a very well-changed... In other words, what we do have today is extreme... You know, all of the people in the senior reaches of the Chinese government are extremely well-trained for their positions, that they really have experienced all the different levels of leadership in economic matters, whether it's the, the north-south, inter international, internal, and that they will understand that the policy is not yielding the same result the result that they want and will change. My big worry is that if this current top leadership pursues in the line that they have chosen five years ago, 
that the efficiency of the economy will decline and that we will see increased pressure for downward pressure on the economic development rate of the One, country. Last question. Why did we see the third plenum of the 18th Party Congress, which laid out a plan where market forces would be the dominant factor in the economy? Well, that third plenum is very important. It was in November of 2013, if I am not mistaken. And most foreigners who looked at that were confident, or gained confidence that our fears were unfounded and that the party would resurrect commitments to the old pattern, Deng Xiaoping pattern of economic development, which had been pursued by Cao Jiang, Jiang Zemin, and of course by Hu Jintao in a lesser way. Um, but the third plenum decision, if you read it carefully, also has reasons to make you worried. Yes, because they made decisions to their, their internal contradictions. Internal contradictions. Yes. Yes. On the one hand, they decided that the market would be decisive factor in the allocation of resources, and when we read that, we sighed with relief. But then the next sentence is that we will also make sure that the party retains a dominant role in the economy, and by Western logic, that doesn't really jive. We don't see that you can achieve both objectives simultaneously and be successful. So the third plenum has confused me and a lot of other people. This conversation has given you a flavor of what is in the book, Economic Policy Making in China, 1949 to 2016, The Role of Economists by Peter Botelier. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks for your service for all these many years. Thank you, Stephen.